we need to shake up our education system because what we're doing is measuring that which is easily measurable, scores in tests. We aren't, we aren't able to assess the impact of our education on their self-efficacy and how they see themselves as learners. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, welcome to episode six of the Rethinking Education podcast. I hope you're enjoying the show so far, which is really an attempt to widen the conversation around education and to bring alternative voices and ideas to wider attention. Having listened to my conversation with Ian Cunningham, one listener commented on Twitter, I like this Ian Cunningham guy. He's like Ken Robinson, but with solutions. The same could be said of today's guest. Kovan Atwal is a head teacher, or rather a head learning leader of two schools in Essex and the author of a brilliant book called The Thinking School. Kovan talks about things like collaboration and resilience and problem solving and teamwork, ideas that are increasingly sneered at in some quarters of the education debate or dismissed as 21st century skills buzzword bingo. But like Ian Cunningham, Kovan walks the talk and his story is really impressive and inspirational. This is a fascinating conversation in which we discuss why we should be more positive about our education system and recognise just how effective and inclusive it is, why we need to rethink how we capture and evaluate and celebrate the achievements of young people, and how to transform a school by focusing on the professional learning and development of teachers. Kulvan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me on the Rethinking Education podcast. You're very welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So I was first told about you by my very good friend, Kate McAllister, who said, you have to meet this guy. He's running a school. He's doing incredible things. Um, and I started to follow you on Twitter and I really um, enjoy your Twitter output. And just for the benefit of listeners, I work at the Institute of Education, UCL, in the Centre for Educational Leadership. And when we spoke last week, it turns out that lots of the colleagues that I work with have also worked with you for a number of years and that you and your colleagues have taken part in lots of the programmes that I am involved in in running. Uh, and so it was kind of inevitable that our paths would cross eventually. And I'm very pleased that they have. Um, so when we spoke last week, you said quite early on in the conversation, um, we're not thinking about how to develop learners. And that struck me as a really strong and simple sort of summation of the problem that I've been trying to address for the last 10 years or so. So I thought it'd be good to start there. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean when you say that we're not thinking about how to develop learners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because it goes to the core in terms of what is the purpose of education? What is the purpose of schooling? What is our purpose as educators or school leaders? Um, and it's something, you know, I've been teaching for just over 20 years and it's something that gets me thinking all the time in terms of my experiences as a learner and what I want for those those children I'm responsible for. And the easiest way to put it is, 
is that there, as far as I'm aware, there is nothing more complex in this world than the uh, human brain. Um, and uh, children are natural born, human beings are natural born learners. Um, and uh, children learn more between the ages of zero and three than at any other time in their lives. And, and I'll give you a little example about that, is that they have an expectation that they will learn and that they will succeed. So they have an expectation that they will learn to walk. And no matter how many times they fall over, they, they internalize the expectations of society that they'll learn to walk, they'll learn to talk, they can, they can learn multiple languages. And their progress in their learning is, is remarkable. Um, so we don't have an assessment system for children, uh, at those age zero to three. What we do is we understand that they are learners. Now, the first time children begin to view themselves negatively as learners is often when they start school and in response to the feedback they may receive from adults or the extent to which they start comparing themselves to other children. So my argument is there, what are we doing uh, wrong or what do we need to do differently as, as institutions to enable children to continue to develop those learning skills. And, and as children, as you know, we, we have a play-based exploratory creative curriculum for children in the early years up to the age of four or five, but then we move to what we call formal um, education, which is about children sitting and absorbing knowledge and being able to demonstrate that knowledge. And what I'm arguing is that we are creating children within our system who are able to recite knowledge and are able to jump through the relevant hoops and are able to pass exams. But does that necessarily give them the skills to learn? So, for example, do we want our children to be able to tell you uh, the names of the wives of Henry VIII um, and the order of them and what happened to them? or? is our intention to enable our children to develop a passion for history and, a, and, an, and an enthusiasm and motivation to be engaged um, in understanding and wanting to learn about um, different events in history and how that may affect us now. So what I'm arguing is, are we enabling children to develop skills like a sense of curiosity, um, creativity, problem solving, teamwork, um, and I think that we need to shake up our education system and look at different ways, because what we're doing is measuring that which is easily measurable, scores in tests. We aren't, we aren't able to assess the impact of our education on their self-efficacy and how they see themselves as learners. So just, that's just a little bit about the kinds of things that um, I think about when I'm creating an environment which is designed to enable children to learn. Indeed. Thank you very much. You're, you're dead right. We treasure what we measure, as I, as I read recently. I think that that's very true. Um, so can I just like, ask you about that? Because you mentioned there that, you know, you, you were comparing sort of, you know, learning, learning the, the, the wives of Henry VIII versus developing a passion for, or a curiosity or the ability to think critically, say. And of course, um, we're in, the, we're in uh, the year 2020 at the moment. And for the last sort of five years or more, maybe seven years or so, there's been this real, really big uptick in very sort of traditionalist thinking. And the traditionalists would say, well, that's precisely how we develop passion 
among or curiosity or critical thinking that you have to embed knowledge first and maybe we'll come on to that first sorry maybe we'll come on to that later but do you have an answer to that just at the outset what do you think about this sort of this neo-traditional push for knowledge as the basis on which critical thinking will will develop well i think i think we're living in an age in which um you almost have to sit one side of the fence or the other and it's so easy to label people as traditionalists or progressives and i think that often with anything it's something much more in between so i you know people will say that if you if you argue for this uh type of learning which is creative you're arguing for uh group learning or project-based learning when actually there is a place for direct instruction just as there's a place for children to be able to learn collaboratively i think that we've moved too far over to a model that's only valuing um knowledge and only valuing a very narrow um eurocentric british model of what what learning should be valued or what knowledge essentially is important for us to learn um but but what 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 that doesn't necessarily do by itself is inspire motivate and engage um and surely even those who are passionate about a strong knowledge-based curriculum should want those learners to develop a thirst for more knowledge um and that's what that's what i'm aiming for are you going into secondary schools and are we finding children with a thirst give us can you give us more knowledge so we can take more tests um and and we are completely neglecting the situated learning that takes place in institutions where children learn through social engagement with others one of the things i've been working on with a group of children i've been uh coaching i would call rather than teaching is the value of once you've mastered something the next stop is the opportunity for the learner to become a teacher so where 11 year olds are getting opportunities to teach others the skills that they've learned um or the knowledge they've earned in maths as a way of of embedding that knowledge and and inspiring and motivating them to want to learn more um so yeah i i'm not one of these who's who's gonna uh, wave a flag for one side or the other what i'm going to say is what i think and what i see um and yes there is a place for knowledge but i think that we need to rebalance that in terms of not teaching the children what we think they need to know but actually also engaging with the ways in which they want to learn and what they want to learn and giving them some choice in you know in in the experiences of school that they want to engage in Yes, absolutely. And I think that you touched on something really, really important there when you talked about the importance of social aspects of learning. And I agree that, you know, trad and prog, traditional and progressive are often quite sort of unhelpful labels, although they do sort of, I think that there is some use in them in the sense that it does, they they do sort of, you know, identify different ways of thinking about education. But it seems to me that that maybe this is about like individual versus social learning. And it seems that lots of the stuff that traditionalists talk about, about retrieval practice and cognitive load theory and even direct instruction, it's a very individualistic model of learning. It's about what's happening inside the cognitive processes and building schema inside the individual's mind. 
But social, and it strikes me that lots of what progressives talk about are things like, you know, like developing emotional intelligence and group work and, you know, being able to relate to other people. And it's much more of a social thing. And I think that if we see it less about trad versus prog, but more about how do we strike the balance between individual learning, which is obviously very important, and social learning. And that they lead to some quite interesting ideas about the idea of sort of, you know, competition versus collaboration or being better than people rather than better with people and there's there's no winner in those com- in those com- in that conversation you need you need a balance of both and if, i often think about something like science science is a really good example of when collaboration and competition are in balance so there's like there's loads of collaboration and sharing of ideas but there's also a healthy dose of competition where individual scientists want to be the ones that, that get there first they want to have their name on the new molecule that's been discovered or whatever it is so it feels like when those two things are in balance then we're cooking on gas and that's maybe a more helpful lens to look look at rather than trad prog yeah, I think you've got it spot on as well, because sometimes people lose a sense of criticality because they feel they have to adhere to one philosophy or the other. Now, as a, as a, as a teacher myself, you know, I have got nothing against direct instruction. Certain things can be taught directly. But where is that balance in enabling children? For example, the balance in most classrooms between teacher talk and children talk. And so in our school, well, in our school, we have a complete focus on dialogic teaching so that there's a greater focus on the children building on each other's ideas, uh, collaborating with each other, engaging in deeper thought and dialogue and criticality and questioning of the, 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 the content and the knowledge that we're studying. I think that's, that's even more important as children, children get older, the, 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 you know, I, I, from a personal perspective, I I cannot just sit and listen to someone lecturing or or, or um, giving me a series of facts. I want to be able to to question that. I want to be able to debate. I want to engage in dialogue with my peers. Um, this is what engages me, um, and this is really really important because what skills do our learners need to be successful in life? And one of the one of the things is that, that their self-efficacy and how they view themselves as learners. Now, if they're taught, if they're being told a very narrow uh, value of learning, which is recitation of facts, then they will internalise that as the 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 key thing to experience. But will that necessarily help them in life? You know, are we giving them the social emotional development to be resilient to be to be able to to um recover from setbacks to be able to to consider themselves as individuals to be able to consider how their emotions affect their learning so in the same hand where you've got this knowledge-based direct approach you've also got this zero tolerance approach to children's social and emotional and behavioral needs which need to be taken into consideration if we're going to try and engage and create an environment in which everybody succeeds i think it's easier for schools to go down this approach of drilling a rote learning recitation um because the, the assessment system is asking for that but it's also easier in terms of managing the children um because you're saying this is what you need to pass your exam um being able to to work together and engage in collaborative dialogue isn't necessarily going to get you there and this is where each school needs to look itself and think that can they not get the outcomes by 
engaging in a process in which children are learning socially, which is taking into account what they currently know, a social cognitivist perspective, which is building on what those children already know, but has to take into account some opportunities for teachers to get inside the minds of the children, rather than create an environment in which all we're doing is getting children to look for the answers that they think are in the teacher's head. Um, and that, I believe, stifles creativity. Yes. Yeah. And so I just want to be clear at the outset of this conversation that we're not we're not having this conversation in the abstract. And one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk to you is that you're an example of somebody who is rethinking education, not in some sort of, you know, navel gazing conversation, but actually in your practice and that you're doing really innovative, forward thinking things. And you've made giant strides in the last few years in the school that you've been leading. Um, and so I'd like to move on to that now, if we can. So you're currently the head teacher. Is it executive head? Head teacher is that your title well I'm, I'm head teacher at uh, highlands primary school and this is my ninth year there um and i was also asked to be interim head teacher of a second school within our local authority uh, which is a five form entry primary school um which is under the ofsted category of requiring improvement so it needed support um so i've, I've not actually used i don't actually use the title executive head teacher i'm just the head teacher of two schools. Um, but I'm happy to talk about the journey at Highlands because we do do things differently. Um, and I'm happy to say that we've been, you know, really successful. So we, we, you know, it's all about sharing practice and how we can be a model for creating an environment in schools in which not only do the children thrive, but the adults thrive. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's a big part of your work. So take us back to when you joined Highlands. Was it 2012, you say? This is your ninth year? Yeah. And this was your first headship, wasn't it? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which you joined? What was it like when you joined there? Okay, so um, I was appointed as um, head teacher in the, in the spring to begin in September uh, 2012. And um, about five or five or six working weeks before I started, the school was put in a category of requiring improvement. Um, pupil outcomes at the school in 2011 were amongst the sort of bottom 5% in the local authority in terms of pupil progress. Um, and I, I honestly believe that if that judgment had taken place prior to the interview process, I probably wouldn't have got the job because they, they may have felt they needed someone more experienced. Um, so what I inherited was a school with really established practices, a very hierarchical leadership structure, a lack of teacher autonomy and voice, a fairly young teaching team, but with a very established leadership team. Um, and, you know, with, with, with all due respect, you know, I've, just, I've worked in, I've been head of three different schools, um, two others whilst being head of Highlands. And usually when a school is failing um although often the teachers get the blame it's usually leadership um that need to think differently or work differently and that was certainly the case there um but what i what i what i discovered was a team of teachers who were on their knees and i remember um one of the sort of middle leaders at the time saying to me but we're working so hard but it doesn't seem to be making a difference. And this is a thing that in, often in schools that are struggling is the teachers are working really hard, um, but it's what they've been asked to do. 
and, and what the impact is then on, on children's learning outcomes. So, you know, the, the, the natural inclination for leaders in schools is to try and micromanage and control every teacher within an inch of their lives. And so at that point, I was four years into my um, doctorate. Um, so I thought I wasn't, uh, three young children, a doctorate, clearly not busy enough. I, I should take on my first um, headship and it's requiring improvement. And um, early on, I mean, you're, you're uh, I don't know whether you think it's lucky or not, but requiring improvement schools get double the amount of um, school improvement partner visits um, than, than the average school. So, you know, you do get this sense of being watched, being monitored. Um, and it, I'll, I'll give you a little example of when I first met the associate advisor at the time and she said, oh, you know, the schools require improvement. You need to do, you know, a very secure improvement plan. Um, and she asked me what my plan was. And I, and, and I said, I've got a really clear plan. I've been doing four years of doctoral research, which is which is focusing on uh teacher professional learning and the factors that impact upon teacher engagement in professional learning and i've looked at research across the world and i'm beginning to develop a conceptual framework of uh, formal structured activities that we can engage in that will enable this expansive informal learning environment it, it, what i had described at the time as a dynamic learning community so she, she asked me what i was planning to do and i said look these guys have been observed to within an inch of their lives to such an extent that they haven't got a clue what, what, what they're doing. Um, they are unable to take risks. They're unable to trial changes to their practice. They're unable to, to demonstrate the impact of what they do on children's learning. So there will be no formal lesson observations for this entire term. Instead, we are going to develop our knowledge and understanding of the craft of teaching, of pedagogy, of how children learn. Everyone in the school is going to engage in a collaborative action research project um, and that we were going to focus on quality change, which involves learning over time. So no piecemeal, one-off training sessions, meetings after school. The topic for the entire autumn term will be uh, assessment for learning. And we're going to engage with the research of um, Dylan William and Professor Paul Black. Um, and each year group is going to look at the context of the 90 children that they teach um, and come up with a research question that they're going to investigate. And they're going to use a reflective cycle in which they um, trial changes to their practice and evaluate the impact of those changes. Um, and they're going to get the term to do this and they're going to engage in research. And at the end of the term, we're going to have a sharing session in which each year group is going to come back and share their findings in terms of pedagogy, in terms of how children learn, in terms of assessment for learning. And I remember at the time, the year six team looked at peer learning, the impact of peer learning, peer-to-peer -peer children. And uh, year one looked at how to ensure that their, the whole class carpet sessions were enabling them to engage every learner, of authentic use of talk partners. So really good research questions. And I said, at the end of the term, those findings are then going to be written up and that is going to form our assessment for learning and teaching policy, which we are all going to believe in because we created and that's going to inform how we teach. Once we've done that second term, we, we move on to another piece of research, which is dialogic teaching. And we're going to look at the work of Robin Alexander. And she just 
looked at me and she, she thought I was absolutely mad. Um, and the first thing is she was polite and she said, well, you know, that type of work and action research might be appropriate for an outstanding school or a school that's doing really well, but definitely not for a school that's requiring improvement. And then she said um, that what you are going to do, and she gave me a warning. She said, look, you've probably got 16 months um, to turn this school round. Um, and I, I, yeah, as I said before, I had three young children at the time. And she said, if you, if you don't get it from requiring improvement to good, you may lose your job. Um, and there's nothing that quite um, gets you really thinking at the, then the prospects of losing your job. Um, and she said to me that I'm going to go into every class and I'm going to observe every teacher and I'm going to give them a judgment against the Ofsted gradients of outstanding, good, requiring improvement or inadequate, because clearly, James, everyone likes to be told that they're inadequate, don't they? Um, and I'm going to I'm going to set targets and that I'm going to come back in three weeks, four weeks to each classroom. And she didn't mention whether or not um, I was going to en enable or support them to, to, to develop their learning or understanding or meet those targets um, and come and tick a box to see if they'd improved or not. And so as she left, I had this horrible feeling, you know, what do I... What do I do? Uh, these 700 children, I love them and I want the best for them. And I'm, my research is telling me this is the best thing we could do, creating this expansive learning environment. But I've also got three, three children at home. Um, but I did the only decent thing I could do, which is I stuck to the plan. Because if you, you know, in, in leadership, you have to do what you believe is the right thing to do. And I think sometimes in, there's the danger in schools that we use the advice of whether it's Ofsted or, um, uh, you know, our uh, the local authority or the trust, um, uh, and we're not brave enough in challenging accepted notions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm confident that by engaging every member of staff, not just teachers, our teachers are called class leaders, our learning support assistants are called learning coaches, engaging everybody in this model of activities like action research, peer learning, lesson study, master studies, so every teacher is supported to complete a master's, coaching, uh, uh, collaborative planning, um, you know, a series of activities which create a culture of high trust, develop social capital, that we're all learning together, that we're all taking risks. Um, I engage in all those activities too. I try my best to teach every day. Um, you create a very powerful learning organisation which then replicates itself. And the difference is these theories are workplace learning theories. They are not uncommon in, in, in other industries or however, however you want to describe it, health and social care. Um, it's just in schools we have this very narrow model of professional development, which is five inset days. And in-service training, do we still use that? But no, we call them inset days. I call them professional learning days because we're valuing the profession and we're talking about learning, not development. And meetings after school every week in which teachers slavishly attend when they're absolutely shattered from their exertions um, during the day. Um, so we make time available during the school day for, for teachers to engage in professional learning. And 
the, the, the fundamental thing is, James, is the biggest single factor that impacts upon the quality of children's learning experiences in schools is simple, it's the quality of teaching. And so my life work has been based on how do I develop an environment in which every teacher is uh, masters educated, reflective, uh, curious, creative, critical, independent, autonomous, uh, takes risks. And I, I can tell you, leading a school with uh, every teacher being like that, it's not difficult to it's not difficult to lead. Which is why, even though I've got two schools, I can spare time for a, a lengthy podcast like this. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's quite that's quite the endorsement. Um, and I love how this has sort of grown out of your own research. You your your career sort of followed mine quite closely in that you did a master's yourself and a PhD, and you found that this was the most powerful professional learning that you had engaged in. And now, like you say, you're just spreading that and growing it throughout your organisation. And in your book, in the Thinking School, um, which is about this whole sort of way of way of doing things that you've developed you write a lot about communities of practice I, I know and um and in particular there's a quote where you said I wanted to work in a school in which every teacher was like the most effective teacher that I had seen with a passion and a curiosity to continually improve and focused entirely on children's learning outcomes so nine years forward from then when you set out with this with this ambition and you decided to ignore the the, the school improvement partners um, advice how close would you say you've come do you think that do, would you say that you have achieved that vision that you set out to achieve well, first of all, one of the things that we do is, uh, you know, I think often Ofsted get unfair press because of the way in which they I'm not saying they're particularly consistent. I'm not saying that they are uh, uh, an effective framework to judge the schools. And, and I certainly don't think that they uh, work in partnership with schools to enable them to improve. But I, I don't think that they are... Um, they are the reason why schools don't function as learning organisations. Um, and it's a way in which we mediate the influences of either government policy or the levers of government policy into school that makes the difference. And as, as leaders, we have to be strong. Now, in terms of creating an, envir an environment of like a thinking school, um, it takes time because it's a cultural change. And where you have... Uh, practitioners who may have been successful under a more hierarchical system or who are successful at lesson observations and actually don't want the status quo to change, they are going to find it difficult to work in this environment. However, um, I actually remember uh, a point in which about at the end of the third year where I, you know, I, I'm a great believer that I wouldn't be comfortable leading a school unless I was comfortable that every one of my children, um, I'd be happy for them to be in any class in the school. Because until you reach that point, then if that class teacher or class isn't good enough for your own child, why why would it be good enough for every any other child? And the reason why this focus on professional learning has driven me um, right from my first day as a teacher is because straight away I saw the inequality in terms of children's learning experiences dependent on their teacher. And this does impact in our schools with the most disadvantaged because they're the ones who need the great teachers. And so 
yeah, I'm, I'm going to be open and saying that the, 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 the best teachers are the ones that are continuing to learn. I mean, it's Thursday today. I read something on Monday. I introduced it into my class on Tuesday and discussed it with my children. So if I've, I'm still um, able to, to trial changes and improve my practice, then why isn't everybody like that? And this is this concept of what you were saying earlier about we're not developing learners. There was a piece of research in Chicago that argued that the average teacher stops improving in their third year. We would not accept it in any other industry. We would not expect, accept our um, sky engineer to say, oh, I can't work with that remote control because when I was training, it was a different remote control or plumbers who haven't adapted to new systems. Um, or, or we naturally accept that our, our new car is going to be a better uh, version of on its previous model. So in, in industry, there is this need to be a learning organization and a need for innovation. And I don't think that we do that in schools. We don't create an environment. And when you were talking about communities of practice, we're arguing that more, far more is learned informally within an institution than formally during those days and time set aside for teacher professional development. And, and a simple way of looking at it is, how much does an NQT learn from their mentor who comes in and observes them six times and they have dialogue? And how much is an MQT learning from the community? So really consider your school in terms of the expansiveness of the, of the learning environment and to what extent it is a, a community that is continually curious. I started by saying we're not worried about Ofsted. Well, we, we were inspected, um, uh, you know, I've not really mentioned this before, but we were inspected uh, almost exactly 16 months after I started. And um, uh, I graded the school myself, my own self-evaluation, as outstanding in every in every area. So in 16 months, I've, I've said it's gone from requiring improvement to outstanding. I didn't actually think that there was an inspection team um, that would be strong enough to say that we're putting this school up um, to grading points. Um, but I remember sitting in, um, and, and you have unconscious bias, and, and this is nothing against inspectors, but you, you know, you, you, she said it's a big thing to go from requiring improvement to good. Um, it's, you know, how am I going to persuade my boss? I have to make a, she said, I have to make a phone call to, to it's like the mafia. I have to make a phone call to the, to the godfather um, to approve it, to go from require improvement to good. How am I going to say it's going to require improvement to outstanding? And I said, that's, that's not my problem. You just asked me what I, what, where I grade our school at. And the other, the other, uh, one of the other inspectors actually asked me the question, well, you've only been ahead for 16 months and, and you would have taken a school from requiring improvement to outstanding. Well, well you, you'll have that. What would you do next? You know, how, how would you develop after that? And I said, well, I'd share that practice beyond this school so other schools can learn. Um, but yeah, they weren't brave enough to, they weren't brave enough to, to grade us outstanding, uh, but we don't really care. Um, but the, the local authority um, considered us outstanding um, uh, to at the end of the uh, of our second year, um, and then and when we were next inspected, it was a one day which which said that we're capable of outstanding, and the following one, you know, said that we confirmed that we are. 
Um, but having said that, when I went into that inspection, I, they, they couldn't really understand the way in which we work. They couldn't understand the distributed leadership model. They couldn't understand where where they wanted to know about the curriculum. I said, well, here's two teachers from the classroom. They'll tell you about the curriculum. But one thing they did say, they, they said they'd never been to an environment in which every member of staff answered every question in exactly the same way and had a strong, such a strong understanding of dialogic teaching and the philosophy for professional learning. Um, but yes, it, it's, a, it's an important point because often people scoff at our approach um, because they don't actually believe that by empowering teachers, by giving them autonomy and giving them a voice and enabling them to be creative in the decision-making of actually what happens in the classroom, um, which actually follow, follows a model of Japanese economic policy from the 1950s, will actually work. Um, so, you know, I, I never want to be in an environment in which as a leader my focus is on um, control. And I, I'll give you an example. And, and, you know, it sounds really um, silly when I say it out loud, but this is actually what happens in schools. So, you know, a leader will go and tell the um, teachers that this is what you, you have to teach and this is how you've got to teach it. But I don't trust that you're going to be able to do that. So I want to collect your planning. I want to, I want to look at your planning to see that you have planned according to the way that I want you to plan. But that's not enough. I want to come in and observe you and check, right? that you are teaching in the way that we've told you to teach. So I've checked your planning, I've checked your teaching, but I still don't trust you. So I want to do a book look. I want to look at the books and I want to monitor the extent to which you have done what you said you're going to do and the children are going to do what they're going to do. And we've got to see this amount of work every day in their book. And eventually you come to a situation in which um, teachers stop bringing their brains to work because they are so focused on doing what it is they're monitored for that they've stopped questioning, well, what is the impact of this activity upon my children's learning? And what I would do is I look at focusing on outcomes and saying, right, okay, as a, as a, as a year group team, what do we, what is our aim for these children? And, and, and we talk about our aim is to develop independent, creative, reflective, thoughtful, caring, passionate, learners um this is the this is how we're going to design the curriculum to enable them to get there um we are going to enable them to be strong readers writers and maths uh, mathematicians and our children perform out have outperformed um almost every other i mean we're in the top few percent in terms of pupil progress and have been for, for eight years so we hit every box um but i don't tell the teachers how they how they're going to get those children there We've 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 got we've agreed the outcomes. They are going to bring their brains to work collaboratively, not responsible for the individual classes, responsible for the year group, in how they decide to get them there. And the only job we have in between is they need to come to me in a timely manner if they feel that there are any barriers or any risks of them not achieving those outcomes, and I will support them. And um, my responsibility is to give them the tools and resources, the time, the space, the learning activities to succeed, which is just a different way of, a very different way of looking at it. But there's a, there's a strong force against teacher empowerment and autonomy in, in, in our country. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's, oh my goodness, there's so much that you just said there that my head is almost spinning. This is really music to my ears because this is, you know, exactly the stuff that we talk about at the Institute for all, all the time and have done for many years before before I joined them. Um, and it's just so lovely to hear of such a such a, a sort of technical uh, example of a school that has walked this talk and has absolutely just made it made it incredible um and i and i love the fact that what you're talking about is taking ideas from from the field of workplace learning you say quite early on in your book that it's sort of ironic that for organizations that are all about learning that schools are actually not very good at the core business of thinking about teacher learning we think about student learning all the time but teachers professional learning and development has been pretty woeful and and we're on a we're on a really fast learning curve i think as collectively as a profession and i think that in the last five years people have started to embrace more forward-thinking practices and i think that twitter and blogging has sort of helped that as well that people are communicating and sharing ideas but I don't. I still don't think that the ideas that you're talking about, things like you mentioned, learning organisations and uh, communities of practice, and and this, there's lots of echoes here with the last episode that I did with Professor Ian Cunningham, who similarly was working with lots of organisations out in the world, doing very forward-thinking practices, and he just sort of looks at what happens in schools in a state of sort of bemusement because he thinks, you know, you're supposed to be all about learning, and you're not. You're not implementing what we know to be best practice about how to make professionals learn effectively. So um, this is very inspirational. And I think that later on in the conversation, we're going to come back to, to thinking about, about education in, this, in, in an even broader sense, about the sort of patterns that we see currently, the, what we see that's great and what we'd like to see more of, some problems that we see out, out in the wider system or systems uh, and potential solutions to those problems. But first, as you know, in this podcast, I quite like to start with the guest. And the reason for that is because I think that people are important. I went to an implementation conference a few years ago and somebody said that the practitioner is the intervention. Like changing what happens in schools is not about metacognition or assessment for learning or peer tutoring or all these abstract ideas that sort of fill our lives. It's a people problem. And so we need to think about this as people and people have values. They have different ideas about what education is for and so on. And so I'd like to understand a little bit more about you as a person and where you where you sort of uh, came to how you came to, to think about things in the way that you do. So let's start by going back to the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about your early life, your childhood, your own experience of school? Yeah, um, well, I was um, I was brought up in um, East Ham, um, which is in East London. Um, and looking back, I think, you know, I had a strange experience of um, schooling. Uh, you know, I do see myself as someone who loves learning. Um, but I don't always don't always think that the experiences that I had in school uh, nurtured that love of learning. Um, and, you know, I, I um, uh, as a very young child, five or six, seven years old, you know, we were living in an environment in which um, we had the shadow of the National Front. Um, so, you know, it's very clear in terms of developing your identity that you are seen as an outsider and and you are seen as, as you know, there's a fear, isn't there, that, that you're not welcome and, and people don't want you. And I remember one of the things that I reflected on, uh, upon in my PGCE was the fact that we were actively discouraged to ever speak in our um, own language. 
even in the playground at, at school. Um, so, you know, when I, whenever I was traveling, right until up, you know, until I was probably closer to 20, you know, my grandmother who, who, who raised me didn't, didn't speak English, but I'd be embarrassed to talk to her in, in Punjabi, which is my language, um, outside in the outside environment. And so this sense of, uh, you know, essentially racist attitudes just does make you think that you're somehow inferior to others. And then when I relate that to um, the school system, uh, I think I quite enjoyed primary school because um, there was a sense of uh, a wider range of activities. So like, for example, we'd go out to the forest or, you know, um, we got to play cricket and we we got to do we got to do more sort of topic based learning um, and and we had opportunities to drive our own learning sometimes so for example we had to do a topic but you could choose what the topic's on um, but then I actually went to a grammar school um, which everyone was uh, in, in my family was particularly pleased about obviously the first child to go to a grammar school I've got three older sisters um, and um, just a little bit of background, no one in, in our family had been to university before. Um, I'll say obviously, but it's not obvious. Mum left school at 15, um, uh, manual labour, cleaning jobs. Dad um, worked on a building site from the age of 18. Grandfather was um, uh, illiterate because he worked, he, he he told me that he was a lucky one because at nine years old he was working on the farm outdoors didn't need to read and write so you know i do think when we when we look at this concept of of disadvantage we really need to reevaluate what that means because you know i'm living i'm living in an overcrowded household uh multi-generational um didn't have my own bedroom till i was 16 so i was fine you know that might seem strange to others. Um, free school meals, um, English not my first language. But what 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 greater thing that can you give someone than a passion for learning? And I, I'm as passionate about learning right now, talking to you, as um, as I was as a, as a child. And I think my my grandmother was a an influence because I think where I wasn't getting the self esteem in terms of being a young Asian boy in East London, what I did get very strongly is a sense of family and a sense of community that gave me a lot of self-esteem. And I honestly think that my grandmother instilled this belief in me that I could achieve and, and, and be as good as anybody else, and, and which then became sort of like an expectation, like you've got the grammar school, you've, you've sort of cracked it. And now grammar school, I really enjoyed the social element, um, and I still see... My, I still see my friends from school, but I, you know, the, the, it switched me off learning. Um, it was boring. Um, I, I, I wasn't able to, to debate or to talk. I got in trouble in class because I talked too much or was considered rude to teachers. Um, and so, you know, I can pass exams. It's not difficult. You know, GCSEs, A-levels. Um, even university lectures and things that just didn't work for me. So the first really 
really powerful learning experiences when I did my PGCE, which I absolutely loved because there was a purpose to it. There was a context that by engaging in this research, by looking at this theory, um, I'm going to improve my impact upon these children and they're, 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 they're going to be different every day and learning is messy um, and I have to change my mind and do things differently. But that, that engagement in research was, was really powerful for me. So when I started um, in my first year as an NQT, firstly, I was shocked by the, the attitudes of some of the teachers. And I was working in a school um, in Stratford, East London, um, and I think I was one of, firstly, I was one of the only teachers there who actually was from London. Um, and we, I mean, we had people from all over the world, Australia, Canada, South Africa, and all over England, Cornwall, York, different places. But I, I didn't see, I didn't, I don't think the children, you know, sometimes people are using this phrase, you can't be what you can't see. I don't think the children saw the, the aspirations of people who'd come from their, their community. Um, but I, but from the first few days there, I had this real sense of injustice because I was having, I was teaching nine, ten, eleven-year-olds. It was a mixed year five and six class, and, and some of the children I was teaching, and they'd lived in England all their lives, they couldn't read, and, and I just could not believe how it was possible. And it's possible if teachers have low expectations. It's possible if teachers don't care. Um, and I, I really don't think. The environment is like that now but I, I i was working alongside teachers who were motivated positive enthusiastic passionate committed to enable every child to succeed and i was working across uh, alongside people who are negative about children negative about their own professional development learning negative towards me because i was enthusiastic and so the, the, that was one of the things that drove me and the other thing was i had a bit of a panic in my first term because i thought I looked at what was off one on offer in terms of professional development with this one-off session on this, one-off session on that, teacher had to plan. And I thought, if I'm not engaging in sort of reflective practice and action research, I'm going to stall. Because as much as, you know, great teachers can be intuitive and make positive changes, unless you have that engagement with research, it's not, it's not critical change. And, and you, you don't develop that self-confidence. And, and we often compare ourselves to other countries. In Finland, you're expected to be a master's level educated. In 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 our country, it's about two percent. So, I wanted to, you know, the university that was University of East London where I did my PGC. They said, why don't you start your masters? You know, because they knew how passionate I was about it. And I and I asked senior leaders at the school at the time. I told them I wanted to do a masters. And they said again, they said a masters is not appropriate. For an NQT, do you know how hard it's going to be? It's tough just to get through the induction year. Um, and in my mind, I was thinking, but this is going to help me. This is going to help me develop my practice. Do you know how tough the school is? How tough the children are? And they said it's a master's is more appropriate for a more experienced teacher. So you, you see where we have this snobbery um, and hierarchy sometimes, um, or put or wanting to put NQTs in their place. And, and I, again, I had to do the only decent thing I could do, which was I did the masters in secret. So on a Wednesday and Thursday evening, some people probably thought I was leaving early. And Thursday, being a male primary school teacher, they decided to put me in joint charge of the school football team. So I had to tell the university that I'd be coming after um, training um, so that I'd be a bit late. 
Um, and I remember my first module was literacy in practice. And I chose that because I thought I'm a really good maths teacher and I feel really confident in it. Um, but I'm not as confident in terms of teaching of reading, teaching of language, uh, grammar. Um, and so, and, and I, did, I did that module and I developed a program of paired reading in the classroom with, with uh, uh, more experienced others. So Vygotsky would have um, approved. Um, and, it, and it worked really well, and I, I've never looked back since. And so every, every NQT we employ is encouraged to do a master's. Every teacher is supported, 60% we pay for. And some people say, how can you afford that? Well, we don't have to pay for advertising. We don't have to pay for recruitment. Um, our teachers aren't sick as often because of their professional learning is so valued and they, they, they have a sense of self-efficacy. Um, and so that, that tells you oh, a little bit about the journey of of social justice and equity that I believe our education system has to promote and I don't think we, we're really getting that right at the moment. Yes, indeed. That's an absolutely fascinating journey. Um, I just there's one bit that I'm not clear about, which is about you sort of said that you went through, you know, even at university, you said that you weren't really feeling, you know, uh, that that it was um, that it was giving you what you needed in terms of instilling a love of learning, and that you got that on the PGCE. In terms of like why you became a teacher, is that something that you always thought would happen, or is that some did you did you do something else first, or like well, how did you make that decision? Uh, James, it would probably take you another few hours to, <laughs> to, to share all the different things. Um, you know, I'm I'm a great believer in um, in giving people opportunities to to learn beyond the school, right? So, for example, um, when I was at school, as soon as we turned sixteen, we wanted a Saturday job, and I and I my Saturday job was at Sainsbury's, and it's one of the most Powerful. I mean, I was. Uh, I, I'll tell you an interesting story about, um, you know, a work ethic and what enables me to be successful is because I had to. I had to succeed at school. I, I had no choice. Um, uh, what I mean by that is the my parents expecting me that they've worked. So my dad worked seven days a week, so that I wouldn't have to work in that way. And what he did do is he did a clever thing. He took me uh, to work on the building site with him. So uh, I was sort of the, the, the labourer, but uh, scaffolding um, and, and building scaffolds um, and handing the poles to him. And what he did is he made me work really hard. And, and at the end of the day, um, I won't mention the fact that he also uh, bought me a pint of beer and said that if you're going to... This is this is the way in which to enjoy drinking if you've done a day's work. Otherwise, you're not. Um, but he told me that if you want to work on a building site, I can get you a job on the building site. But if you want to if you want to have a job that that isn't going to be as hard physically on you, then you need to study. Um, and that's quite a sobering thought because sometimes people arrive at that thought when they're 23, 24, and it's too late. And and education's passed them by. And one of the things I noticed at university, there were lots of people. Uh, I really related to the um, sort of the older students, um, what they call mature students, because they really cared because they'd returned to education. And well, I don't want to lose those people along the way. Um, and when I went to 
when I went to university, I didn't see how listening to a lecture for 60 minutes w was giving me any more than reading a, a book or uh, or engaging with a wide wide range. What I did enjoy doing was like, for example, the seminars, <coughs> like when you're in a small group and you're debating things. And I did enjoy um, sort of the higher level thinking and I enjoyed writing a dissertation. Um, but but when you're good at when you're good at, at exams and I and I think I'm a I'm a, I'm a product of a system that favours that type of learning. I can memorise, and then I, I I don't think it's creative. When you're asked to write four essays in a three hour exam in university, it's not about being creative. It is about thinking, um, considering ideas while you're writing. But really, you are demonstrating that you understand your subject and you can write about it. Whereas I quite enjoyed this balance of, of the PGC in terms of theory and practice. In terms of where, where how I came to choose to do a PGCE is um, I started a master. I started a master's immediately after I'd finished my degree. So you're 21 and you're thinking I could do a master's. What would you do? Um, and I left that within two weeks because I just didn't think it was going to be intellectually challenging or it wasn't something that I was passionate about. It's like a business or something other. Um, and then I just I did a series of um, different jobs. You know, I've worked behind a bar. I've delivered milk, um, uh, manual labour. Um, and I think it was just a period of where I was sort of discovering what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And um, I was asked to... I was actually asked by someone if, the, if, I, if I would be willing to coach... Um, a football team at a at a secondary school, a private secondary school, so they 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 can employ um, coaches like that. And once I got there, um, and it was actually it was an all through school, right from three up to eighteen. And um, once I got there, then they asked me to take the PE lessons. You know, after taking the PE lessons, they asked if I wanted to do teach a GCSE maths, A level history, Year Seven geography, humanities. And um, I, I have to be honest, I did it for about seven months and I applied for the PGC while I was doing that because um, I just loved it. I just enjoyed it. And, and I think someone once said, if you're doing a job that you love doing, you know, it's not really work. Um, but uh, one, of the reasons, one of the things is in my final year, one of the modules I did, because it was a degree in economic and social history, was um, a module on the history of education. Right back from the 18, I won't even be able to tell you that uh, that particular act, but the, up to 1944 Butler Act and beyond. And I remember when I was doing, I had my interview on the PGCE uh, and she, uh, the interview interviewer asked me, right, to, to you know, tell us what, 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 what has brought you to here. And I, I, I described the history of education since 1870. She goes, I've done a lot of interviews. I've never had anyone for a PGCE who, who's done that. And I, I enjoy the job as much now as I always have done. And But I, I feel a responsibility to the profession um, and because one of the big concerns I have is uh, the average age of a teacher in this country is a lot lower than other countries. And that isn't a positive in terms of a recruiting. It's a, it's, a, it's a negative because we lose too many teachers. We burn them out and we don't have to. And the schools in which I'm working are proving that we don't have to. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that that's something you feel really strongly about. And I would like to come to come back onto that later, the, the so-called burn and churn culture that we're seeing currently. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in, like yourself, is these ideas of social learning and informal learning and accidental learning and and this idea of significant learning and I don't mean that as in oh I learned something and it's so significant that I think everybody should know it but um but I just mean you know like learning that has changed your own the, the the trajectory of your life or your own thinking in some way I know we've talked about many examples of that in the in the the account that you've just given of your life up to the point that you're at now is there anything else that stands out before we move on to thinking about the rethinking education part of the conversation in terms of moments of significant learning that you think have really sort of um crystallized something in your mind that you previously had been overlooking say i think uh, you know this this feeling about our education system has to look to improve the world in terms of you know social justice and equity um in an in 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 a within an environment which is inherently unequal we live in a class-based society um and you know we we look to our politicians who who come from such a narrow narrow community themselves um and and i think i want i want to create um i want to create an environment in which people feel that they can make a difference rather than being sort of battered in into submission and just when you said that there's a book i read when i was because i do i do genuinely just love learning so when i was doing my a levels um i sort of had to do maths because um i did my maths gcse in year 10 so you start your a level a year early and you sort of because you're good at something um you sort of get encouraged to do that but actually i i was really passionate about literature and english at the time and I, was, I used to talk to the people who was in the a, English A-level group, and they're a different group from the maths A-level group. No one tends to do English and maths. And um, I actually read the books that they read just for, for pleasure. And there was a book um, that I read at the time called um, Misogynies by, by Joan Smith, and it described a view of the world in which the, the knowledge of the world is created by this narrow group of people and is it inherently unequal towards women um and it might be in a strange it might be a strange example to give in terms of learning but i think we're doing a disservice if we're if we're not believing that we need to create an education system that is pro producing for want of a better word people that want to make a positive difference to the world and want to do that through collaboration um, and so we're a UNICEF rights respecting school which focuses on the rights of the child and, and universal human values and it, it's unfair when we talk about British values because are we saying that British values are somehow better than other the, the, the values of other countries or cultural values and we we want to focus on universal um, human values and, and if you go back to the first discussion we have in terms of developing skills they are skills because if you don't believe that, that uh, learning is related to effort rather than ability you won't believe in yourself as a learner you won't believe you can challenge the status quo you, you won't believe that you can become whatever it is that you want to become whether it's a politician um, and you know what one person once said something to me when I was a deputy is 
she said to me, you haven't got a choice whether or not you become a head teacher. You have to become a head teacher because you need to set an example for other people. And I thought, cheers, thanks. <laughs> but I could see what she meant. I could see what she meant because, you know, when I first started as a teacher, I had this sort of inferiority. You know, I looked at the names on the, on the list of my first class and I, I thought, do these parents have any idea that the, the children are going to be let loose on this on this mad person who, who, who doesn't know what they're doing? Um, and, uh, you know, it's probably given me the self-confidence to do things my own way as a head teacher as well and to block out the outside noise and the sounds. And then in those first couple of years at Highlands, we just didn't do any... We, we didn't really conform to any of the expectations beyond our school because we were just so focused on developing this environment, which is focused on situated learning. And um, two of the two of the founding fathers of this concept of workplace learning, and Lave and Wenger, um, looked at communities of practice and argued that the social environment is responsible for most of the learning that takes place. Um, and you you can you can tell the expansiveness of the learning environment on the most recent entrant. So if you want to know how, how strong a learning environment the school is, don't ask the head, ask the NQT um, or the student teacher. What's the culture for learning? And this concept of, of collective wisdom rather than individual. Now, when I went to Highlands first, you had some really good teachers individually, but they didn't. They were under so much pressure. They didn't have the time or space to even talk to other teachers about pedagogy and learning. What I aim to do is create an environment in which that in, informal learning never stops. Um, the curiosity, the engagement, the you know, engagement with research doesn't mean you have to do a master's and a doctorate. It can mean reading articles. And I I create an environment which makes it as easy as possible on site. For teachers to engage in time in 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 those types of deeper reflective yes i mean this is something that i've known a little bit about i've been done some work on learning organizations before but having spoken to you and having spoken to ian cunningham last week i'm going to scrub up on my lave and wenger uh, and some of the other people that you write about in your book because clearly you know these the organizations because i think the organizations it might be might be a bit of a sort of a private sector public sector thing dimension to this where you know organizations that are competing in, in the market you know they can't really afford to be taking chances and so they they, they seem to take workplace learning very very seriously because they know that if you don't then you sort of you know you can't compete in that world um, and so maybe there's an aspect of that going on as to why this has sort of not been um, as su such a central um, feature of educational thinking as perhaps it should be. Um, but um, so so it, it feels like we're, we're morphing into the rethinking education bit of the conversation now. So essentially, I want to do this in three bits. First of all, positive things. And we've already talked about lots of examples of stuff that's going on at Highlands um, and elsewhere. But it would be good to just see if you've got any other things that you can see that are happening more widely in the system that you think is really good and that you'd like to see more of. And then we'll come on to the sort of problems and solutions. So let's start with positive stuff. Well, one, uh, how do I put it? It's almost a negative about a positive. One positive is, is that actually um, the education of our children and the outcomes of our children are a lot better than we perhaps give ourselves credit for. Um, 
And we don't talk enough about how much teaching has improved in the last 20 years and how the outcomes for children have improved in the last 20 years. It's just ignored in, in, in the whole scheme of things, particularly with our national media. And I, I can tell you, and this, when, when I talk to people outside of education, they go, oh, really? That's surprising. At, at age 11, the quality of these children's writing technically, creatively, in comparison to what they were producing 20 years ago, I would argue what five children could do in 2000, some classes 20, 25 children can do. Um, and we seem to use the thing, thinking that um, GCSEs have been dumbed down, so more people get uh, um, can achieve. Uh, more people are going to university. Rather than thinking this is something to be celebrated, it's almost as if, oh, oh, back in our day, when we went to university, it was really difficult. A-levels were difficult. Anyone can get an A now. And I don't think there's enough credit given to our education system and to what children can achieve. And the other thing I'd say is that we often look towards these Scandinavian countries as, as models of success. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something, James, is I... I'm quite popular in, in Oslo, and I've done a lot of work in Oslo, and I'm asked to go over to Oslo um, to support schools to improve, to how to engage their learners, particularly for children with Norwegian as an additional language. And when I say that to educators in the UK, they're shocked. They're thinking, why would, why would Norway look to, to an educator from here? Because we're probably not giving ourselves enough credit, credit for what our children have achieved. Um, and this sort of London effect, in which in the mid-80s, the worst schools in the country were in London, are now some of the highest achieving schools. This, this is positive because we need to replicate this across other communities in the northeast, northwest, um, out in Suffolk and Norfolk. And I think, I honestly believe that the, 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 the type of model that I'm describing is not only cost-effective, but is really powerful in impacting upon um children's learning experiences and we need to collectively um collectively have higher aspirations for our children um but the key thing is we should con continually be striving to improve but there is too much focus on negativity about children about profession and not enough celebration so that's that's one thing yeah, I, I think that that's definitely true. Like we hear all the time about our broken system, the language of, of, of education, and not just about what's happened in the past as though things have all gone wrong, but also about you know like the vision for the future. We have very pessimistic visions of the future for young people, for example, like just in terms of education, like if you don't get these grades, then you know, you're not going to go on to live a happy, productive, you know, well-paid life sort of thing. And also, you know, just more generally, we sort of quite pessimistic. There's not very many people out there who are peddling positive visions of the future, are there? Like all, nearly all of our, our visions of the future is just, you know, these like footage of plumes of smoke, ice shelves collapsing into the sea, and it's all like ecological collapses coming. And there's not very much positivity around. Um, and I think that I would, I would love to see that starting with education. People talking about our amazing, award-winning, incredible education system and the transformational emancipatory mechanism that education is you know it is a, fun, a fundamentally very cool thing that we do and i think that maybe i'm negative i'm negative 
a bit too much myself. I, I often see I often see the problems more than I see um, what's really great. So thank you for that. That's really it's really nice to hear. I'd also add, James, that we don't celebrate how inclusive our education system is um, because it isn't that aspect isn't particularly uh, valued, but. Um, it is, you know, you can judge the quality of a society with how it how it enables its most vulnerable, um, and I think these are things that they're not sexy, are they, to discuss in the media? Um, you know, constantly trying to improve pupil progress. I think what we've demonstrated is we can tick the box of enabling our children to be successful in these types of exams. That's a perfect springboard to say. Yet we can do that. How can we get them to use those skills to be more creative, to make a difference to society, to work collaboratively? And I, and I think we've got the opportunity to do that. And it's interesting, there's a person I was listening to recently, um, uh, Lord Baker, who wrote the 1988 Education Act, is saying that GCSEs you know, were designed with coursework activities. Um, and we've got our system now to a point where ch children can pass GCSEs, but we need to find other ways of assessing and places like Australia, um, uh, Germany are looking at is you can actually assess children's critical thinking and creativity. And by developing those skills, we're going to be developing um, more rounded children. And I think this, this folk, that, that focus on positive isn't discussed in terms of in inclusion. What is discussed is exclusion. You know, the, the, these numbers of children excluded from the system. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and it's partly just, I think it's a bit of human nature, isn't it? There's something about, like, if it bleeds, it's le it leads. And some people say, well, that's that's really bad. That's like the, the news media who are just sort of bloodthirsty. But actually, you know, like, the, you know, have you ever read that positive, there's a, there's a children's newspaper, Positive News, and it's lovely, but it's also not as exciting to read as, you know, something that's much more about, you know, somebody needs to get sacked or somebody's got caught up in some scandal. That sort of rubbernecking is just, like, inherently, part of human nature isn't it um but again you know we can we could find some sort of a balance here and and um big up the positives um so yeah i think that's a really really sound piece of advice is there anything else in the positive column before we move on to um the next part of the conversation i think another positive that we need to take um you know just going back to the bit about the children in, in terms of positive about education we're not also not positive about our educators and, you know, our teachers work incredibly hard. Um, but if we're saying that we're not creating environments that enable them to learn and succeed, it isn't the teachers that are at fault. But that's just a thought I want to put out there. But another positive is, you know, there aren't many positives about lockdown. But I feel that there seems to be a collective questioning of established practices, like a questioning, a curiosity, critically analysing what we do and whether or not it is... It, 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 we need uh, whether or not we need to change what we currently do, and I think that's really powerful because that's a almost a teacher-led voice that we don't have to do what we've always done, um, and and even even for example the value of remote learning and blended learning has absolutely accelerated, um, and so there seems to be a collective energy uh, for rethinking, which is a word I know you like, or reimagining education that we we weren't really allowed to to do previously and i really positively believe we cannot allow 
to to dissipate and the reason for that is because we're in a uh an environment or an industry or a profession whatever you want to describe it um that has always traditionally been resistant to change and and the reason we've been resistant to change is because teachers are passionate about what they do so it's how you initiate and mediate that change to schools so if you tell everybody you've all got to do this because what you were doing before was rubbish that that inherently impacts on a person's self-esteem and how they see themselves if we change the environment to one in which we say we are a profession that is constantly evolving, um, adapting, um, tinkering, trialing, then then that culture will 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 be embodied by schools in a, in a way in which that it's okay and comfortable to continually want to improve and develop. And the best practitioners, even in their twentieth year are open to change and develop and improve so it's that type of culture that i think we need to really really um uh take advantage of um and sort of keep the fire um keep the fire burning and i and the, and the other thing that i would say is that um when you talk about bad news you know, in the media, they don't want to talk about good news stories about our young people. I feel that they're vilified. Um, and, you know, I, I, I am a governor of a secondary school, um, which is about a 12-minute walk from my house. And um, whenever I have had the opportunity for my to walk my children to school or until the point they get too embarrassed of walking with their dad, I can tell you the behaviour of the children walking to school is a million times better um, than when I was at school. Um, and the environment, the safety of the environment, and the fact that the school's a place in which children are encouraged to share their emotions and are supported. If you read the media, you'd believe that these are feral children um, who have no interest in learning. And I also think that we should acknowledge that young people generally have an optimism that they can change the world and that they can change the world um, for the better. And, and if they get the opportunities, for example, engagement in politics or climate change, um, and we, we seem to forget that um, uh, the environment is enabling children to be optimistic, to believe that they can um, break social glass ceilings in a way in which the rhetoric just wasn't like that before that you from a certain background you need when i was at when i was at school i was asked why do i want to go to red brick university i didn't even know what red brick university was <laughs> you know but i but i did have a self-belief that i could be successful um i could be as good as anybody else and i think it's harder for people who don't see themselves within the system or don't see a place for themselves within the system and the reason why the reason why I, I focus so strongly on teacher professional learning is you know one thing I would say is you, some children will succeed in a school if my mother-in-law was teaching them they'd be independently able to access the resources engage in independent learning the best teachers and the best schools um, make the greatest difference to the lowest prioritizers children that haven't been successful or or have been disadvantaged and that's what we do at highlands we've, we've been awarded the and we haven't told the parents this yet but we've been awarded the 
Mayor London Schools for Success Award for the fourth consecutive year. And, and when we first got it, we didn't even know what it was or how to get it, but it, it's awarded to schools in London, which make the greatest impact in terms of pupil progress for the lowest prior attainers. So the children that come in at age, from age seven to 11, they make the biggest, biggest difference in um, attainment. And yet, to get that award, you have to be in the top 6% of schools. By getting that award four years in a row, we are we are sitting alongside. We're one of only twelve of the two thousand or so schools in the whole of London um, to achieve to achieve that award four times. And this is what I say to people who sort of doubt this, and they do doubt it. This concept of you don't have to monitor the teachers, you don't judge their lessons, you don't check their books. Um, no, because we believe in a culture of high trust, which gives you an opportunity for high challenge. Um, and this is the, this is the um, um, this is the this is the impact. And the final the final positive is that often in schools leaders have become so detached from the classroom that in some ways they've almost become de-skilled. And what I'm demonstrating is the favourite part of my job still remains the teaching. So actually working with the children. So seeing their creativity, their enthusiasm, their motivation, understanding them gives me a different perspective when I work on professional learning with the teachers. But most people will say it's impossible for a head teacher to teach. How can a head teacher teach? Now I've got, I'm leading two schools um, with nearly 2000 children and Tuesday morning I talk from 8 to 8.55 and then 9.45 to 11.05. So it's pretty much the whole of the morning. Um, my belief is I, I can't see a point where I wouldn't be teaching, where I would be taken away from the classroom. And I think that's an important message because the schools will reproduce the types of leaders that are successful in these hierarchical environments. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big uh, player on the, in terms of uh, the writing scene but what I am, I see myself as one of those little indie films that certain people have picked up on. And last last week, I had a, had a dialogue over Zoom with school leaders at a school in South Shields. Now, I've never even been to South Shields, who are following the model in the book. And I know that they're going to be really successful. Um, so the, the last line of the book is, I want to move from a thinking school to a thinking school system. And I think we've got, you know, a powerful opportunity to do that. Um, and it isn't about me, because sometimes people say, yes, you know, it's wonderful to be able to do a doctorate. Oh, where did you get the ideas from? The ideas were out there. Uh, like I said to you last week, I read Peter Sanger's work on on um, the fifth discipline field book and creating learning organisations and workplace learning theories. It's all out there. We just, I think we just need to to move into 21st century thinking and create uh, learning organisations rather than performance or organisations. Absolutely, absolutely. And thinking about moving to a system, I mean, that, that teacher who said that, that you need to be a head teacher, I'm just going to say that listening to Radio 4 this morning, it feels like there's a bit of an absence of leadership in the Department for Education at the moment. So I'm just going to leave that there. 
Um, I mean, it, it, there is a whole question around that, isn't there? The way that the way that um, that education is so politicised. Um, but let's let's park that for now. So let's move on. Having said all of that stuff around, you know, it's really important, and that's great to hear you to hear you offering so many so many examples of of reasons to be cheerful. Um, let's talk about some of the problems that we see now, because you know the system is not not without them. Um, so, what do you see that's happening out there at the moment, at this point in time, that you think is particularly sort of problematic, or maybe some things that you think this is actually quite a, a quick win? We could actually just stop doing this, or do more of this and less of this, and we could really, you know, transform lives in quite an easy way. So, what are some of the problems that you see? And then I want to talk about the solutions. And we can either do that as in like, here's a problem and here's a way to solve it. Or you could sort of, we could talk about a bunch of problems that you see and then we could talk about a bunch of solutions, however you prefer. Okay, I think um, I think what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to, because I think the problems are interrelated and the solutions are potentially interrelated. interrelated. What I'll do is I, I'll talk about a few th- things that I think are problems, challenges, however way you want to look at it. Um and then what potentially we can do, which people probably will understand the kinds of areas that I'm going to delve into in terms of uh, really straightforward solutions. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a believer that our education system is broken. I, I'm a believer that our education system has been successful in taking us so far. Okay, We've improved people's literacy, people's numeracy, core standards through a really a marketized system of of competition uh central control and uh assessment frameworks um rigid national curriculum and where where i think we need to do some some one person said to me to get a, a system from not very good to good um you you you, you control more but to get it to improve even further, you need to release. And I think we're at the point where we need to release and, and, and think differently about how we maintain these core skills, but we've become much more creative in, in what we want to achieve and what we assess, because like I said earlier, that is leading it. So the first one is our thinking about the philosophy of how children learn. Um, and what we've got is a very narrow model at the moment, which sees children as, you know, I believe empty vessels to be filled with knowledge. Once you've got that knowledge, then we're going to test you to the extent that you've remembered that knowledge and, and can recite that knowledge, and even to the extent of how to answer test-type questions. To me, that's not a skill. If I if I give someone the passion, the motivation, the creativity, the curiosity, they will be able to answer the question according to their own schema in terms of taking their own learning into account, their contextual understanding of the knowledge that they've been taught. So I feel that it disempowers children as learners, um, and they, they can work the system. They can work the system. My, my daughter's in, um, was in year seven during lockdown and is in year eight now. Um, and she's self-isolating um, since yesterday and she's downstairs. Um, and I'm said, haven't you got any lesson, uh, online lessons? She goes, no, I'm gonna do some art. And, and, and I, I said to her, you did a lot of art during you did a lot of art during lockdown. Either you're at art school, or you seem to do be not doing your maths and um, English when when I'm not looking. And what I see there is someone who's when she's got the opportunity to do to to follow her passions and engagement in her learning, she's doing the things that she's passionate about. But she's able to 
to jump through the hoops of maths and, and English when necessary, but not the creative elements of maths. She doesn't want to know how one uh, field of maths links to the other. She just wants the formula. She just wants to be given given the instructions and learn it, practice it and, and rehearse it. What I don't think she, she was encouraged to do is develop those mathematical links. Um, and I, I really believe, because we, we, do, we do follow a dialogic teaching approach, which is one of the reasons our children are so articulate and are so successful in tests, because we've gone the other way. We've given them the language, the tools. Um, so we need to rebalance the, the uh, quantity of teacher talk, adult talk and children talk. So it's much more aimed towards children talk. Um, and so that the teacher is facilitating that talk to enable children to discover theories in science rather than being taught them. And it's a difference between telling someone what to do um, and enabling them to understand the value of, of doing those very same things. But within that same culture of compliance and control and assessment, we stifle our adults' um, learning. So really what I want to do is to encourage dialogic teaching, talk, articulation and critical thinking for children um, and adults. And that leads to the problem that I think we have with our ass assessment system, which is just balanced towards measuring that, which is e easy to measure. Um, and I think that we really need to look at creating um, an education system which has a, uh, at its heart the development of children's social, emotional, um, personal development, how they see themselves as learners, how they engage in the learning process. Um, you know, children know that the more they play a computer game, the more successful they will be. They don't think about that when they come into a series of maths. They're put in attainment groups. That, that, that limitations are placed on them. Um, and I think that they're not leading their learning. And so an assessment system, which then can measure through tests, how can we, how can we look at other countries around the world um, who are, um, you know, we're, we're creating a system where children associate ability with success rather than effort. Um, are we creating an environment which can en enable the effective assessment of children's creativity? children's critical thinking skills, um, children's resilience, children's team working, collaborative working, collaborative learning. Um, and th this is so important because we may be developing children who can pass tests, but are we are we developing children who are articulate and creative in their in their thinking? And we're not going to be starting from nothing. There are there are some powerful people who are looking at how we can rethink. It's a small band of merry people, but they're, they're looking at how we can rethink assessment. And I haven't looked at it in, in great detail because um, it's been busy enough as it is recently, but Australia and a couple of other countries are looking at developing an assessment system, which is far more holistic in the way it looks at um, children's learning. Um, yeah, written tests, can assess a child's knowledge, but is it assessing their, their brevity and flexibility of learning? Um, the other thing, big problem is in our society, we don't value our teachers at all. Um, even, even if you think of the rhetoric within lockdown in terms of, you know, 
key workers. I don't think teachers are seen as key workers. They're seen as whingers. They're seen as moaners. They're, they're seen as people who don't want to, you know, these are people who are working on the front line. Um, at, at, at the secondary school I just talked about, from Monday to Wednesday, including two of my children, 300 children have been asked to self-isolate. And these are, these are the daily challenges um, uh, these schools are facing. But the biggest issue, which is obviously my life work, is like like you you mentioned earlier that in the very institutions where the core business is learning the quality of teachers professional learning yeah if you wanted to give a grading where you wanted to call something inadequate that would be the one the, the assessment system has no value places no value on teacher learning the number one responsibility of a head teacher and i don't i don't even call myself head teacher i call myself head learning leader should be professional learning of staff I mean, you know, some person's given a title CPD lead and sets the, sets the CPD timetable. That isn't a philosophy for learning. That isn't taking into account uh, teachers' individual context and learning experiences. And, and, and if we actually looked at the number of teachers that lose the profession and the cost to the nation of doing that, I think we'd, we'd really be saying that as a profession, we're failing in our, in our regard for the professionals that actually make the difference. So um, this, you know, another problem I'll touch upon, but I think those other three are in the theme, is this concept of zero tolerance. Because there's, there's nothing more unequal than treating everybody equally. And that's what zero tolerance does. It doesn't take into account um, the factors that impact upon children's behaviour and, the, and their social and emotional needs. Um, and, I, you know, I've also always had this belief that every person has social, emotional, behavioural difficulties, because if, if adults didn't didn't have social, emotional, behavioural difficulties, we wouldn't have prisons, we wouldn't have road rage, we wouldn't have arguments. Um, and yet we're, we're less accepting of children and their behaviour. And this, this concept that behaviour should be, we should consider behaviour as being learned in the same way children learn maths and children learn English. But we're happy for the adults to disempower the children and not for the children to question that. So th those are the, the, you know, those are a few of the problems, but empowerment of educators and creating environments in which they're much more expansive for teacher professional learning. So then they don't stop and stick to the same strategies in their third year. They don't stifle children's voice, stifle children's learning. It would be the biggest factor that would impact a self-led, self-regulated profession in which educators are deciding upon the curriculum rather than politicians. Um, and I think that most people in the profession think I'm mad in terms of my views on teacher empowerment and teacher development. But I shouldn't, certainly wouldn't believe that places like Google and, and, and others in which, you know, um, where is the teacher voice within the profession? I know the Chartered College are doing some work, um, but it's a very top-down system led by a think tank and a philosophy which is very narrow. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to stereotype, but public school educated background of what 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 character education and what what children need. Um, if we could tap into informal workplace learning and the expansiveness of the learning environments um the value of teacher professional learning development master's level study engagement in research coaching peer learning lesson study 
it could be transformative. It really could. Yeah. So you think that that's the end of the thread, if you like, that all of these problems are sort of inter interconnected, and that like, that reprofessionalizing teachers and valuing them, and for example, recommending and supporting them to get master's qualifications and to take more ownership over their their own professional lives. You do you, do you see that as like the end of the thread, if you like, and that if you if you can if you can pull that and and sort that out. That, that lots of these other problems will sort of solve themselves in, as you, is, as you say, what would be a self-regulating system? Well, I think, I think what, what, we're, what I'm not necessarily arguing is we'll solve all the problems, but we'll, we will go a lot further to solving the problems because we'll be more self-critical. And so the uh, adjustments will be, will be more immediate. But the problem is that we're creating leaders fit for the system in, in, in which these guys are working. So... Our school, the work of our school is seen like an outlier. So within my doctorate, I've developed this concept of learning focused leaders. And there's two concepts, two, two aspects to that. Leaders who are focused on their own learning and development, but also judge their effectiveness in terms of children's learning outcomes. Um, but if you're, if you're leading in a hierarchical compliance led environment, you're going to create leaders in that mold. You're not going to create, um, how would you how would you say it? mavericks who are going to think outside the system and be more creative and critical whereas if you're being led in a way in which everyone's encouraged to see themselves as leaders and to have a voice um, and to engage in these types of expansive learning environments the reason i call it a dynamic learning community is is twofold dynamic because the engagement between um the adults is dynamic um and that the new when new entrants enter they are they they are replicate the environment in which they're learning and develop the skills of learning focused leadership but also dynamic in terms of active open flexible to change not waiting for an appropriate day or time in the year or or the curriculum to make these changes but actively doing that in the moment so so you're a real thinking restless curious organization whereas i think in schools, it's too easy for leaders to be fixed on on what Ofsted want and what um, the the government is asking for, or the assessment models that's been put before you, and not to question that because it is a culture of fear and compliance. And an example of that is a few years ago, um, Ofsted said that they weren't going to be doing judgmental lesson ofs anymore. And and if you're a, if you're a leader who's lived off the power of doing judgmental lesson ofs, you're suddenly stuck because what am I meant to do now? Um, how am I going to do a, 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 you know, an observation that has a coaching approach or is focused on learning and dialogue rather than um, target setting? Yet we, I hadn't done a lesson, I hadn't done a judgmental lesson observation for nine years previous because I could see I could see that there was no value in it. So you have people within the system who do something that they don't see the value of but they think they have to do it and they live by it. They don't question. So we, we, we create a system which isn't critical, which isn't reflective, um, which doesn't innovate. Um, and even if, you know, if we're going right back to the beginning, that's what I was, I was being told to do, wasn't I? I was being told to, to follow the system. You can't go up with your own ideas or theories and be creative. But I know how, how much some of the leaders that have come to visit us at Highlands how much they value 
some of the messages I've said, like I've said to you, and it's changed their learning environment. It's changed the impact on their children. Um, so there is a there is a small body of people who really believe that they can make a difference in this way. And like I said, I've had you know so many requests from schools in Oslo. You know, I would I've I've been visited more schools in Oslo than I've visited in my local authority. That's incredible. Yes, and so and in thinking about the practicalities of what this would look like, I'm totally with you on reprofessionalizing teachers and recognizing the value and releasing that. It seems to me that what you've done at Highlands and what you're talking about is about releasing the sort of the the I don't want to use the word capital because it's a bit it's just like commodifying it in some way, but the sort of the potential, like the latent potential that that exists within the teaching profession, if we can if we can liberate that potential, and it's a it's just sort of a bit like a distributed leadership like argument, sort of writ large, if you like, if we can unleash that potential, and it's not just about individuals, but like you say, it's a collaborative, interconnected endeavor. Um, we I think that we could unleash an incredible amount of of potential but the question then is is how do we do that like so and and you so you've obviously shown how you can do that at the level of you know a, a head teacher and you because you walk the talk right you did all this research and it seems to be a continuation of the sort of the journey that you've been on in your life and the one of the questions that's so ch- tricky is how can we scale up when we when we know about something that exists uh, on a on a small scale and by that i would mean you know like one or two schools say how can we then scale that up in such a way that it remains effective, recognizing, like we said earlier, that implementation is a people problem? And so you might want to think about this. I don't know, like if you if you were, you know, playing sort of if I was secretary of state for the day, say, or for a year, or it might be at the level of, you know, if you're in charge of a multi academy trust and you've got some head teachers who are very much in your mold, but other head teachers who are very much more in the sort of authoritarian, top down, crack the whip do as I say, not as I do, cult of the leader type mode. So you've got this very mixed bag across your multi-academy trust, say. Um, so like, just in terms of the practicalities, what do you think we need to do? And it might just be baby steps. It might be like, what what could we potentially, what questions could we be asking? How, how can we start to crack that open so that we can scale it up? And I'm, and by the way, I, re- I realise the scale of the, 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 the problem that I'm outlining here is a significant one. So I don't expect you to have an easy answer necessarily. Well, firstly, I think um, uh, it's a great question and and, and maybe it's a question we don't ask often enough because I think often, even on Twitter, there's a lot about what isn't right, but not always about what what solutions would work. Um, And it's interesting because quite a few weeks ago, you know, I said, um, I happened to say on Twitter that let's use the collective wisdom within Ofsted to say, in the spring term, that they should have supportive visits to schools that have been inadequate or require an improvement. Now, that's just an idea, and that received quite a bit of criticism in terms of we don't want Ofsted coming in, blah, 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 blah. And it's just a surprise this morning that that is exactly what Ofsted are doing today. And I think that we, we do need to look at a more solution focused rather than digging our heels in and saying, we don't want this, we don't want that. In answer to your question, one of the things I learned through my doctorate is um, in terms of workplace learning is is school culture, um, how to develop a culture for, for learning. So in answer to your question is, how do we develop a culture within our school system 
that encourages this. And to develop culture, you can't, I, I find, I found in my work with schools, you can't divorce culture from structures. You have to have the structures in place, which inherently or unconsciously influence the culture and then vice versa. So the structures are the activities within the thinking school, which are peer learning, lesson study, um, coaching, collaborative learning, action research amongst others um, that then influences a culture of more creative reflective thinking um uh, uh more solution focused uh, professional learning because of the coaching then the culture then influences the structures again because of people's engagement in those activities and vice versa so if you're looking at a national system i think we need to have structures that impact upon um decision making at an institutional level so the macro down to the institution down to the to school and, and we'll look at a single institution because and trust for another powerful way way to do that um so it isn't as simple as saying let's make every school do the activities that are detailed in the thinking school that would be a mistake so every school has to develop coaching every school has to develop peer learning every school has to do lesson study because in this it would become a tick box in exercise we did a coaching course in september and then everyone learned about coaching and now they're coaches we did peer learning but we related it to our school improvement plan that you know that that will not fix it by itself so the structures have to be different at a national level so let's give an example of some of the structures which can uh influence over time, over a six to eight to 10 year period, the system of education itself. The first one, unfortunately, as long as you have uh, an assessment framework for the inspection of schools, which is our Her Majesty's Chief Inspector and Ox Ofsted, and this is interesting because I was asked this question by David Laws when he was Minister of State for Schools. He goes, I love what you're doing in your school, but how do I, how do, I do it in the system? And I said, the first thing is you have to have an inspection framework that is going to put a big flag up saying that we're going to assess the quality of your workplace learning environment. We're going to assess the quality of your leadership of teacher learning. Uh, unfortunately, you tell every school that they need to teach British values, they all pay 500 quid for a consultant to tell them how to teach British values. So that that is a powerful lever to influence schools. and and how you do that and then how you do that in a supportive way will be a different things but that's an example of a structure the other example is to move to a more uh diverse model of of assessment um and i think this happens has to happen at, at the top of secondary school first because there is still enough opportunity within uh the primary school environment to teach a creative curriculum um, and and hit the standards. But to do a history GCSE, geography GCSE, math GCSE, it, it won't be taught holistically. Um, but but Lord Baker talked about how GCSEs originally had coursework um, or the fact that children previously had a record of achievement. So looking at models of countries that, that produce um, a portfolio or an assessment framework that measures what children can do in tests, but also measures so much more. And I think we have to have a commitment to that. What happened last year with the A-levels and GCSEs was frightening. 
because it was telling us that there is no way that we can assess the quality of a school or the quality of a child other than written tests. Just is not possible. It's not going to happen. Now, how, come, how comes they can assess the quality of eight years of learning on a doctorate through a two-hour viva? They don't ask me to sit there and do a two-hour test after writing my thesis, do they? And what, what frightened me was that this our, our education body could not imagine that it was possible to articulate children's learning in another way. So this is going to this is going to require uh, fundamental change because again, from the announcement today, the government do not believe that there's anything other than than tests. So we need to have a commitment to rethinking how we assess children's learning, how we look at children's social and emotional development, because we want to enable them to be successful in life, not successful in passing tests. Less and less children are now doing Saturday jobs um, because they um, haven't got the time because they're revising for their exams. We're not, are we developing them to be successful in any country in the world, to have the skills to be adaptable for, for a future that hasn't been written, or are we leaving them school, leaving allowing them to leave school with with knowledge of the past and knowledge of what what is currently known, rather than thinking about the future? So that would be um, that would that you know if we went. Sorry, go on. James. No, uh, yeah, I'd like to just come in on that because because um, the I, I agree about the diversifying assessment, and I think that there's a really interesting conversation to be had here and it feels like that conversation people are trying to shut it down so for example that even today the reason that the secretary of state was on the radio is because they're saying that exams are going to go ahead in england next year but they're going to do them three weeks later and they're going to release you know some of the information about what's going to be on the test in advance and the interviewer was saying but how is that and he was saying and this is more fair and he was saying but it's not fair is it because some kids like you said some kids have been self-isolating for weeks some of them have lost like six or eight weeks of school some of them haven't so even if you're releasing the information in advance that's something that is still a one-size-fits-all measure and so in what way is that equal and, and he didn't seem to be have an answer to that um but the, it, within the teaching profession i've read some blogs where, where where teachers have sort of said this is this should not be up for discussion we sh definitely should not cancel gcses because they're already persuaded that that exams are the least People refer to it a bit like how Winston Churchill talks about democracy. It's like it's the worst method apart from everything else we've ever tried. And they're like, in terms of in terms of teacher assessments, or for example, that you mentioned coursework, like lots of teachers have, have had quite bad experiences with coursework, where essentially the teachers end up doing a lot of the work. Every every kid gets almost the same mark, and it feels like it's not really, it wasn't really always done in the best possible way. Um, but there are people thinking about this at the moment. There's there's that rethinking assessment group that you might have seen um and there's a really good book out that's um this it's called beyond the tyranny of testing and the, the first bit some people are a bit turned off by the sort of how you know um dramatic sounding the title is um but they the the subtitle is all about relational evaluation and they talk about how we we can talk about then they, they very specifically talk about evaluation rather than assessment because evaluation includes the, the the word value right it's about recognizing what's good here and helping people to move on it's like a celebration and more of a reciprocal sort of reflective process rather than this just like one-off judgment everybody just sit through sit this test at the end of year 11 and we'll just decide you know we'll decide who gets the a's down to g's or nines down to ones from there and so it feels like relational 
assessments are something that some schools are doing like you say there's some really good practice that is happening out in the world that are beyond we're sometimes very anglo-centric i know that i sometimes am in the way that i think about education and there's there's some really good stuff happening out there but i just i I would like to see much more curiosity in the blogs and the tweets that i'm seeing within the teaching profession itself about saying actually you know maybe this isn't a done deal and we know that exams are sort of you know like have lots of inequality in them you know and there's lots of variation in the the, you know the the way that they're marked there's massive variation from one examiner to another if you get a paper remarked it often comes back two or three grades different so we know that there are huge inequalities in the way that that exams work but it just feels like there's a there's an unwillingness to even engage in the conversation at the moment which is you know one of the many reasons that i wanted to to start this podcast is to start to to start to try to get alternative narratives and alternative conversations going well the the thing is it, it, it you're you've got it spot on in terms of unwillingness because it's almost the teachers damning themselves um so yeah one of the things i suggested is you know, if there was a more balanced model for the assessment of children up to the age of 16 that wasn't reliant on a final exam, you wouldn't have this mass hysteria and panic when a child isn't able to sit that final exam. And the rhetoric on Twitter is really damning with this, oh, no, not someone coming on about coursework again. That's reliant on the adult at home. The adult does it at home for them. Or, or it's not fair. People cheat. How is that the child's fault? If we can't create a system in which in, in which we can enable a wider range of understanding of a children's learning, yeah. how can we have a system in which teachers do not understand where children are in their learning and what they're capable of? And and maybe it's easier for me working with 11-year-olds, but by the time my children come to the test, in a mathematics test out of, a, out of 100, I've worked with them so closely, I know exactly what they can and can't do by the time that they get their test. So if that test doesn't take place, I can give you a perfectly good teacher assessment score of where that child is in comparison to others, where those indicators are in ter- types of learning. But where are the where are the indicators for assessment of skills, for the assessment of a child's uh, resilience as learners or response to feedback? All that goes out the window in this test. And I think that because it's, you know, we, we don't do something because it's easy to do. You do something because it isn't easy. So get the get the. I'm not saying I've got the perfect system, but I'm perfectly happy to be part of a group that looks across the world and and looks at a system, in which we are really providing a, a, a holistic view of what a child is capable. Not only in terms of knowledge, but in terms of skills. Because where are we tracking these children in the future in terms of their happiness or or their or their or their development as citizens? You know, it's almost this is your GCSEs, these are your scores done um, and i i think we have to once we've got a little foot in the door because i'm i've i've attended a session with the the panel of the in terms of rethinking assessment we need to k- kick the door a bit harder i think um and really uh have those voices which can encourage people to look differently and i think the way, way in which this country or this government or previous governments have worked is you almost have to convince them that Finland are doing something for them to sit up and take notice rather than the practice that is taking place in in our own schools um but but it's very difficult for leaders to to move away from that which they are being judged on which are those fundamentally those those assessments you're compared from school to school the other problem is the loud voices 
are the ones who've who've got a stake in maintaining the system and the status quo because either they've been successful or in, in it or they are gaining from it in terms of in, in terms of their position politically so these are all things that we need to think about, but we, we'll go further on to these structures. The next structure would be expectations for schools in terms of inclusion and behaviour. Um, you know, if you looked at the statistics around exclusion, there's a spike in year 10. So in year 10, schools are deciding, listen, we, these, 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 you know, these kids aren't functioning and it's not our fault, it's nothing we've done, and we don't want them affecting our exam results, so boom, let's send them out there. So we'd work down the structures, the curriculum, in terms of the extent to which the focus on the curriculum is skills and knowledge, and finding a, a lovely balance between the two. And say, for example, the, the balance between science in terms of knowing your facts, but also science in terms of knowing uh, the skills of how to, to, to learn about scientific theory and, and you know, develop, for want of a better word, vaccines rather than just understanding the vaccine that we have. I mean, these are, uh, you know, climate change. What what can we do about climate change? Um, and and I don't think it's difficult to have sort of project-based learning within schools. And you just mentioned that, and people got absolutely mental on Twitter because I think it's some fad. But why why you know they're going to have to go into workplace environments or a society in which collaboration is going to achieve far more than competition so why aren't we giving them the skills to succeed and i think we do need to be more open we do have this slightly bigoted anglo-centric view of of the education system um but it's reproducing what what it values and what it isn't doing is being outward looking and and learning from the best um which is what people in industry do um and also using different frameworks and, and models um, and even even the extent to which, you know, my research looked at workplace learning theories. It was only because my uh, tutor in my third year told me. Otherwise, it's a mystery to most educators. They've never come across it. Um, the, the other structures would be, um, uh, you know, leadership qualifications. Now, leadership qualifications, you know, first thing you do on an MPQH is what is your vision? Well, it shouldn't be your vision. So how do you the question should be how do you create a collective shared vision so you're looking up at the people that you're with and the team rather than this concept of a hero head who's coming in and knows all the answers and 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 that's also because most leaders do not have that learning mentality about continually developing they're more often thinking about the performance of the school because that is what they're judged on so you know, even even other little structures, the extent to which the assessment, the inspection framework looks at the, the learning of the staff and the school leaders and that subsequent impact upon the children. You know, how are you innovating? How are you developing? There, there, there are lots of things we could work on, but I don't think it's it's impossible, but it has to all fit in together. The, the, the interlocking of the curriculum, the assessment system, um, uh, leadership expectations, the inspection framework, but it, it requires a, a a group of people who can think far more creatively. But it's going to, particularly with assessment, it's going to require something big. It's going to require something similar to 1988 and GCSEs, and 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 I think what Lord Baker 
is suggesting is it's the system since 88 has served its purpose and got us as far as it can go. Now we have to, it's like that sigmoid curve. We need to jump on again. And I'll be really excited to be um, a part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it comes back to that I, that same idea. We treasure what we measure, don't we? And, and you know, schools aren't going to, as long as those accountability processes are in place, schools aren't going to be incentivized to spend their precious time and resources innovating with, you know, looking at diverse forms of assessment when they know that, you know, they're going to be judged on, you know, percentage of kids who, you know, whatever the progress A is or however many of them get A's and A stars and so on. Um, so it's a uh, it's a multi-level problem, isn't it? That there's the, and it seems like the, the almost underlying all of it is that there's a there's a there seems to be a sort of a need for a clear vision of like a direction of like a, like a sort of a unifying story, you know. And I think that one of the uni, one of the stories that that is a, a, a part of this sort of tangled web of problems is the this the idea of the cult of the leader and it's like it's a it's a meme that just reproduces itself and i, I was at a a, a a training day which was a, a large-scale um teacher training organization for middle leaders going into senior leadership and they were talked about the hero's journey you know like joseph campbell who sort of goes up like you know the the the, the template for every adventure film ever about how somebody gets called to adventure and then they go off into the wilderness and they return with a boon and then they share it with all of their sort of you know comrades and then they move on to the next adventure sort of thing and that was literally like that wasn't just mentioned that was like the theme that 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 wove throughout the, their whole approach to training future leaders and it just seems to me to be such an unhealthy very individualistic um notion of what leadership is and what education is all about which is about you know um recognizing that we're in a society that's made of other people and that we need to be much more interconnected and maybe maybe that's the idea that that needs to be that needs to be you know made more of this idea that we're, we're talking about an interconnected system where we're all parts of, of one another's stories rather than pursue and and maybe maybe the maybe it's more about because again, it's, we come back to what we started out at the start of this conversation. It was this, you know, the the, the balance, Where's the balance between competition and collaboration? Yeah, and I think I think what you've got is, and and this is nothing about being anti-academisation at all, because I'm all I'm more interested in how effective a school is. But the experiences of some within some multi-academy trusts, which is absolutely this culture of power and. And leadership is about telling people what to do and you don't question or telling you how to teach. And and that is going to be disempowering. And what I think is important is I'm not arguing that we don't have a strong focus on standards and outcomes and children's core literacy and numeracy. What I'm arguing is that within the system I've created, we are getting the highest outcomes. So so why is it by empowering teachers and enabling them to, to engage in deep, fresh learning experiences, it's having such a fundamental impact upon children's learning outcomes, children's self-confidence. Um, so even that one, you know, people can't get me on because they think, oh, you're progressive and whatever else. Well, well why are our children achieving so well? So we're finding the balance um, and I'm not going to be one who's going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think I think we 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 know how to get high standards, um, but it isn't about rote learning and drilling. Um, it's about giving a bit more space and time for children to think 
and to be more engaged and to be more motivated. Um, and then they will be able to talk about the subject matter because they genuinely care about it rather than thinking about scripted answers or uh, the techniques they need to do for, for answering particular questions. So setting them free. Be, be more open in terms of how we assess that, that teachers, ch children can have choices in the way in which they want to present a piece of learning. Um, and it, it's, not, it, it's not too far for me to say that, you know, part of my GCSEs, um, we were given the assessment outcome, but we could choose how we, how we presented that. So from a simple example, you have to demonstrate your understanding of a government organisation. You could produce a leaflet, you could write a, 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 a speech. You could. It sounds like a really simple thing, but it requires the teacher to think more deeply about the learning the child has demonstrated rather than getting their success criteria in this narrow way. You know, you, you've got two marks in this question because you met that particular criteria in that question. It's just not a natural way of learning. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so in terms of solutions, I'm trying to sort of relate them back to the, to the problems that you outlined. Um, one of them was about um, the, like the sort of the burn. There was, there was two things about teachers. One about like just the, the, the way that we think about teachers and the way that we value teachers. That's a, that's a tough thing to unpick. Like, how can we turn that around? Because often it's in the media. And again, there's these, there's these ideas about, um, about teachers being lazy and that they've got long holidays and they leave at three o'clock and they whine and they're sort of public sector and they get you know they get really good pay rises and why are they moaning about pay and so on and then sort of linked to that but it is really a separate issue is this this burn and churn you know like this very very high turnover i saw a tweet that that you wrote the other day which was about the burn and churn within within head teachers was it yeah. something like 30 percent? what was the figure um well it was um in the first three years i think it sounded like uh 27%, 30%, it might even be higher. Um, I also tweeted about the fact that uh, NAHT surveys indicating that 47% of head teachers, once once locked, like once this COVID situation's over, are thinking of leaving the profession early. Um, yeah, so th I, th I've seen that as well. So we're, so there's already this, so there's around about 30% of head teachers who, is it leave the profession within three years? Yeah. Who, that's, that's incredible. Um, but also we've got this, you know, we're about to fall off a cliff in terms of that because of the intense, the incredible pressure that heads are under at the moment. So it's going to be even more of an urgent um, agenda to ad address. So um, fix that. <laughs> well, I think the, 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 there's a piece of research led by Andrea Schleicher, who's responsible for uh, the PISA system and the PISA ratings and he did a piece of research looking at schools um, and he entitled schools for the 21st century right across Europe and he said one of the biggest problems is uh, professional learning for principals it's pretty non-existent and I, and I, and I, and I think that most uh, I mean uh, most head teachers aren't learning focused themselves because they've been successful in the system that you 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 reflect the system that you're working in unless you're very different so they've come up in a system in which their own professional learning isn't valued uh, their ability to maybe maneuver themselves in leadership positions or pass checklist courses that is the, that is valued 
I'd be interested to know how many head teachers actually have a master's in terms of leadership. Um, th they aren't encouraged to develop learning organisations. So they, they get to a point in which the only way for them to uh, uh, improve practice is through challenge. Um, and by that I mean is through a system of capabilities or telling a teacher that they're not capable. And these teachers are pressured out of the system um, and and they leave the, uh, the profession because they're told they're not good enough. Now, I can absolutely tell you that when I went to a school, when I went to Highlands, I led a school of teachers who were told that they require an improvement. They've been told they're not good enough, right? Those same very those very same teachers were the same teachers and leaders who led that school to outstanding. And I know that there are teachers within our Highlands who in a different school would have been forced to leave the profession because they were told they're not good enough. And one of the reasons is leaders don't know how to develop. They don't know how to enable teacher learning. They know how to judge. They know how to set targets. And, and it's unfortunate because it leads to an environment of high stress, high pressure. Um, and when we talk about the issues of um, teacher recruitment, uh, retention of staff, you know, I've said to you before, in, in, in our ninth year of uh, leading Highlands, and remember it was a requiring improvement school, which is always sometimes difficult to attract teachers. In those nine years, we've spent a grand total of £28 on advertising, recruitment, and retention, and that was for a member of the, the office team. We do not have enough spaces in our school for all the teachers that want to work in our school, yet still other schools do not see the value of, of creating a, 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 a model of distributed leadership. I think that we need to give head teachers the skills, um, and I know that I certainly know that many head teachers who've come and spent the day with us and visited us have managed to replicate the system in their school and they're more happier and have a greater sense of well-being. And I believe being a head teacher is the best job in the world. I really do. And I know others agree. I also know for many it, it's it's so tough that they have to leave. And that's not good enough. In, in, in our system, we have to create an environment which empowers leaders, gives them the time and space to learn. It's like the Premier League managers, the churn of managers. It's like just change the manager. But what 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 could be the impact of giving the manager space and time? And so this this concept of uh, responsibility for principals to engage in learning, and not just reading about going to a meeting to tell you about the latest amendments to the Ofsted framework. That's not learning. That's just reading. That's just knowing. That's just understanding. Learning is about how do I create an environment in which my my teachers are continually improving? How do I engage in collaborative action research? Um, how do I lead lesson study? And and the, the 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 number one point is, as my number one responsibility beyond safeguarding, because you've got to keep your kids safe, is professional learning of staff. It has been from the second bullet point on my first days ahead, and it's my second bullet point in my ninth years ahead. It's easier when everybody else is doing that at Highlands, but in that second school, that is my that is my responsibility. And my also my personal responsibility is to continue learning and growing and developing myself, which is what drives you doing a doctorate. The whole purpose of doing a doctorate is to 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 improve my practice. Um and so I probably haven't really come up with a solution, but almost a national framework for expectations for lead learning in terms of leadership and we've got great universities 
that can support us with that. I mean, in my first two terms, I had to lead the research myself, but that's not ideal. You know, I can do it with a framework, but you need the agitation and provocation of a researcher as well, um, particularly in terms of supporting the process. I can do it on a, on a you know, when, when, when you've completed a doctorate, you have a certain level of understanding of processes, but it's better to be within the system listening to the external um, and in terms of designing the process. Um, but, the, you know, how closely aligned are universities and schools? Because universities were then placed in competition with schools for things like um, uh, student teachers. And so th these are little nuggets within the system that almost it would be like a piece of doctoral research in terms of all the factors that we, we, we might need to change within our system. But I have to say, James, I'm optimistic that it, it can be done and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You need to look outside and see education systems are doing it much better. And, and like Finland, for example, um, will tell you that they consider themselves to be a broken system in the 70s. But big, the biggest difference between um, the, the Finnish system and ours is um, the esteem in which teachers are held. Uh, and the fact that they see this as a, as a really noble profession, um, not a profession in which in this country you're ridiculed because you're doing it because you can't, you weren't really good at anything else. Um, and you go home at 3.30 uh, and you moan a lot and you have long holidays. Yeah. And and this government has sent out really mixed messages about that, haven't they? Like, it wasn't so long ago people started talking about teachers needing a master's and then saying that they need to have at least a first or a 2-1 and then all of a sudden they don't even need QTS, they don't even need yeah. to be qualified in order to teach. So we're sending out very mixed messages on that front and I agree that that is, that is a, you know, and it, feel, it feels like... That, like, that one of the big ideas that sits underneath this, and you've mentioned uh, yourself about having a learning orientation, and it seems to be like about learning versus performance orientation, which yep. is in the parlance. It's a, it's another one of those things that we we apply to children, and we say, you know, if you're learning focused rather than performing performance focused, counterintuitively perhaps the performance goes up. Look after the yep. learning, and the performance takes care of itself. Um, Absolutely. But so I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing, because you mentioned this idea of a learning organization and the work of Peter Sange or Senge, I don't know how you pronounce it, and the fifth discipline. I, I don't know whether people might not know what that is and they might think, well, we are a learning organization because we're a school. So could, would you mind just explaining a little bit about what a learning organization is? I think from the uh, perspective of a school is the extent to which adults learning is valued as much as children's learning. Um, and how you create an environment in which every member of staff is encouraged to see themselves as a learner and to drive their learning. And it's as simple as the extent to which your folk, the balance between the, the learning is focused on the individual in terms of the adult as well as the school rather than just what the school. We need to do this on our school improvement plan, so you're going to learn this. And this is this... Um, a learning organisation sees itself as one that is constantly involving and growing and, and developing. And, and I think schools are often stuck. This worked a few years ago um, and we're going to stick with that. And, and, and what happens then is that then you're not very flexible to change. So if the system changes around you, a learning organisation is one in which people's mindsets have become fixed. Um, 
and uh, they've lost the ability to think critically and creatively and to reflect. Um, so it's a bit like the reflective school, um, it, it, one that is is constantly looking to improve. And what are we there for? Outcomes for children. What can we do differently this year from what we did last year, even though we're really successful? The other thing with an inspection framework is sometimes the the, the schools that are, are the least learning focused are the ones that have been graded outstanding because they think they've done it and they've got it. Yeah. And and the, the, they've achieved it. And you, I'd imagine you have a real dip in, yeah, it can have a potential dip. Well, we're not going to be inspected now for 10 years. So like we're sorted, we're all right. Uh, and my thought after getting that judgment was a, a real fear of being making sure that that curiosity and that creativity and and enthusiasm for change and innovation continues because you know, let's have a look at, let's think about it. Ford aren't going to stick with the same models they've just developed for the next 10 years, are they? They are thinking that they have to innovate and develop and keep up with everything around them. And I don't think that we do that enough, you know, in, um, um, in education. And then once you, once you are a learning organization, you've got to think of ways in which you're enabling the, the teachers to participate in activities that support support that learning so that you know there's certain things that came out of my research little things the opportunities for staff to work in different groups other than the department they work in or the or the or the year group they work in um the opportunities to engage in collaborative professional dialogue about how we want to teach what we want to teach and what you'll find in schools is that often it's teachers are, are working in isolation door closed um now the japanese have been doing lesson study for 100 years yeah they 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 feel fine with 20 people watching and observing lesson and the average teacher in this country would find that the most frightening experience possible yes yeah absolutely so if there's any if there's any uh, head teachers or aspiring head teachers who are listening to this who think right i'm sold on this idea um are there what what would be the key reading that you would recommend if you would say that there was a, maybe a book or two books that you think right this is this is going to really get you set on on this journey yeah well um work, workplace learning theories aren't necessarily what head teachers may need to read it's nice to have that background um but there are others who've who've sort of um uh looked at to how to develop those um environments in schools obviously i would recommend my book if anyone's interested in that of course but, um vivian robinson uh, did some work on student-centered leadership and 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 um her research findings reflect very closely to my own in that in that the greatest impact of leaders is on leading professional learning it sounds really simple um and this concept of by empowering and enabling the professional learning of teachers is the most powerful way that leaders will impact upon children and i don't think they do that i think they're much more focused on the policies the routines the structures and maintaining that so they're missing the point they're, they're, they're almost looking in the wrong direction um, so that's a, a you know a powerful piece of reading, but there are others who who talk about um, different models of leadership. Steve Mumby, in terms of his work at the National College, talks about finding this balance of 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 leading through power and leading through love. 
so this balance of empowering enabling but protecting and 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 um and directing as well um and so it really is looking at um, uh, writers in terms of leadership who have also impacted upon practice and have married those, the theory and the practice and looking at ways in which um, we can lead in a way that is about developing um, learning organization. I would recommend reading the fifth discipline field book. Field book. Um, Definitely. I'd also recommend reading people that aren't necessarily focusing on education, like Matthew Side, in terms of creating teams. And I'm a great believer that it, it should, we shouldn't see it as the individual. We should see it as a team. Um, and how we create teams, you know, one of, the, one of the best ways, my effectiveness as a leader, is I surround myself by pe with people who know more than me about stuff, you know? Um, uh, you know, d different types of... Uh, voices, you know, uh, uh, creative voices, agitators, provocators. This this way of actually thinking that it's okay to 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 criticise and agitate and challenge, as long as it's within a culture of mutual accountability and high trust. Um, so there's a couple of examples. Um, but I'd be, uh, yeah, I'd really be interested if you know for those people listening about what they think and their experiences. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the opportunity last week to talk to the, uh, those leaders in South, South Shields um, who, you know, in their own words, are trying to create a dynamic learning community in their secondary school. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that this is the way to go. And, and Louise Stoll as well, who I work with at the Institute, has done some really fast, fantastic work. This, she wrote a really good report about, um, I think it was for the OECD, for about learning organisations. It's worth a look as well. And I'll put links to all of these books uh, in the show notes. So is there anything else that you that you um, would like to talk about before we wrap this up? I know that you did lots of lots of um, very organized homework. You were on top of your stuff in preparing for this conversation, which was great. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon before we before we wrap up? I think um, the final thing is is for teachers and leaders um, that we 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 would really see the benefit of reconceptualizing the role of teachers and leaders um, in our schools in terms of them as learners. So this this concept of that everybody is continually learning and that we encourage a culture in which uh, enabling the learning of 30 others or 20 others requires you to take risks and to be creative um, and create an environment in which um, collaboration is is much more important than the individual but that we are continually trialing and making changes to practice we're engaging with research we're engaging with the best research that there is out there in a way in which which is really enabling the development of this like powerful learning community for all because if you're not doing it for your adults and your, and your teachers how are you expecting them to do it for their for their children and within our standards model we we judge a teacher in their first year in exactly the same way as we judge a teacher in their thirtieth year. We don't have this concept of of masters of the profession. Um, so, yeah, that's and and the other thing I would say is that if anybody thinks that they want to work in this way, uh, absolutely have the confidence that it will work. And that's one of the reasons why I've developed it in a second school and now a third school is because. 
I, I, I need to convince myself it isn't a one-off because that's what people will say. Oh, well, you done well in your one school when it seems to be working. Um, it is based on research. It is, it is based on my research um, and the literature that's out there. And you're going to have a happier staff team and you're going to have, you're going to have happy school leaders um, and we need to protect our leaders and we need to we need to protect and empower our teachers. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you all the way on that. I think that a really useful um, way of framing a question is not like, will this work here? But what will it take to make this work here? Because that the yeah. path of implementation is always laden with obstacles and challenges and sudden left turns and landmines and whatever metaphor you want to use. And but though that's absolutely a part of the process, and you can plan for those obstacles and you can expect them and therefore overcome them. And I think that 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 shift in attitude from will this work here to what will it take to make this work here is all is is essentially what's largely under, underpinning all of those practices that you. We're talking about about research informed peer review and lesson study and practitioner inquiry um yeah. that seems to me that it's really that it's really valuable and and i was just wondering as you as you were talking you know language is very important isn't it and i know that you yeah. you, you call yourself you refer to yourself as the head leader of learning rather than the head teacher and i wonder if that's a part of a part of this problem that we've got which is that you know we talk about ourselves as teachers and not as learners and teaching is sort of seen as you know almost in some ways like the opposite of learning like you you teach yeah. and then learning happens um if maybe we called ourselves learners as well head learners or something yeah. along those lines that might go some way to changing that perception of recognizing that we're all we're all in this together as it were yeah and i, I think language is really really important we underestimate the power of language um, and we're always happy. Well, we we accept the the uh, reason to alter our language if if it's about control in terms of race or gender, but we don't tend to want to um, uh, change the language around uh, such established institutions such as schools. Um, but yeah, for me to be head learning leader was to be able to tell the staff that their learning was my responsibility and I wanted to enable them to learn in the same way that they want them to enable their children to learn but also took away the title class teacher because there's a power relationship there yeah that I'm, I'm the one who has the knowledge you you need to be quietly sitting there listening to it rather than the the person who's a facilitator of talk and who's, who's someone who wants to get inside the child's head. So our teachers are called class leaders because they're leading the learning of all the children and, and, and the support staff. And our support staff are called learning coaches because we believe that as a coach, it's designing opportunities to enable children to become solution focused. And it's only this uh, earlier this week I was saying to the group that I'm teaching and uh, one girl kept taking the mick out of it. Um, I said, I don't want you to see me as my as your teacher. I want you to see me as your coach. To, to that's my job to help you improve and get you think about thinking about ways in which to improve. And she just kept saying, Are oh, you going to get on your coach then, sir? Are you going to? I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to continue with this because I think it's important to enable the children to understand that it's an active process. That I'm not the font of all knowledge, and you're there to get it. I'm there to think about how I'm going to frame this dialogue that takes into account what is inside your head and your thinking about this learning process, which is interactive, it's social, it's situated, it's emotional. Um, that is what we don't do. What we do do is 
we look at teachers improving subject knowledge, which is knowledge about subject how, but not about the pedagogy of how to specifically teach that subject, or how to how children interact and and are social and emotional in learning that subject, nor um, the pedagogical um, steps of learning that subject and that that discourse. So I think we've talked about a lot of stuff, haven't we? We have indeed, and I feel that like I could talk to you for another three hours at least. But we should probably uh, we should probably wrap it up for now. Um, I hope to have many more such conversations with you in the future. Thank you once again for for joining me. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to know your work. I think it's absolutely inspirational. If anybody's in any doubt, get a hold of The Thinking School. It's a brilliant book. It's really readable. I really like how you write. And yours is a journey. It's not just inspirational because I think that that's like, you know, it's, it's, it's accessible. It's doable. It's like this is not like you were saying. You, you've not invented some. You've not reinvented the wheel here. You know, sorry, maybe you have reinvented the wheel. You, you've taken these, these ideas that have existed out in the world of workplace learning and you just imported them into a school context and you've really made them work. And you've shown you know my goodness that you can that you can go um and turn a school around in the space of 16 months um if we could implement that on a on a system level you know we can i don't i don't need to do this podcast anymore so thank you very much it's been great to talk to you been a pleasure james thank you Time is a measure of change.